from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Jerry Peterson. I'm an elder currently serving on the session here at First Presbyterian. Please join me in our call to worship. Throughout the ages, disciples have said, I will follow you wherever you go. Lord, give us the freedom to follow you in the ways of love. We come from busy homes filled with little time to consider Christ in our lives. Lord, give us the strength to follow you in the ways of peace. In times of struggle, we look to God for help. Lord, give us the opportunity to follow you in the ways of kindness. Today, we welcome the Holy Spirit who shows us the joy of following God. Lord, give us the patience to follow you in the ways of faith. Friends, come and worship our God. Our scripture lesson can be found on page 75 of the New Testament in your pew Bible. Luke 16, starting in verse 19, listen for and hear the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you, Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into uh, this sacred space this morning. As we continue on this series and this journey of your son's parables, would you open this word afresh so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space even to be more like him, your son, the Christ, Jesus. Amen. 
1908, there was a Norwegian industrialist named Christian Nikolai Mustard, and he bought a painting. It was an oil-based painting called Sunset at Montmajour, which was believed to have been painted by the great master Vincent van Gogh. The painting captures a landscape with a prominent oak tree at center. The canvas is filled with shrubbery and bushes and beautiful sky, and off in the distance, in the left corner of the painting is a set of stone ruins that, that just creep in to the frame. All of this painted with what appears to be Van Gogh's signature thick brushstrokes. Mustard, as you might expect, upon purchasing this painting, decided to prominently display it in his home. Well, one evening while hosting a dinner party, one of Mustard's guests happened to be the French ambassador to Sweden and also a student of the arts. At one moment in the dinner party, he called his host aside in a very private moment, rather, and broke the news to him. The painting was probably a fake. How could he be so sure, Mustard wondered. The Frenchman said, well, everyone knows that every single one of Van Gogh's paintings was signed by the great master, and the painting that you have does not have his signature, so it must be a fake. Well, following the party, after all the guests had left, Mustard begrudgingly and sadly pulled the painting off the wall, went up to his attic, covered it in sheets of linen, and there it sat for 80 years. In the early 1990s, about 20 years after Mustard's death, his family contacted the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. They had the painting brought, shipped there. They wanted them to evaluate it once more to see if it was authentic. The staff working at the museum at the time looked at it quickly, and they made their judgment in an immediate way. There's no signature, and everybody knows that Van Gogh signed all of his paintings, and so this painting was obviously inauthentic. A couple decades after that, the museum surprisingly reached out to the remaining family members of Mr. Mustard. It turns out that the museum staff was evaluating a letter written by Vincent to his brother Theo about the year 1888. And in that particular letter, Vincent describes perfectly the scene that is captured in this particular painting. What else was being considered at that time by the staff in Amsterdam was a manifest that Theo kept after his brother's death. He, he had a manifest and he had an inventory of all the paintings that, that his brother had ever painted. And on that list was a marking for a painting called Sunset at Montmajour, which was eventually sold, documented in these papers. And so the museum staff became increasingly interested in evaluating this painting once more. But now many years had passed, and, and now they had the kinds of technology that they could employ that could move beyond just sort of the, the simple criteria of whether or not Vincent van Gogh had signed the painting. 
And so they brought it to Amsterdam. They used special x-rays where they examined the, the campus. A chemical process was used to study the molecules of the paint so as to discern its age and origin. And in the end, after this highly technical process, the museum declared that this was, in fact, an authentic Van Gogh. And even though it had spent eight decades in an attic, it now needed to be displayed prominently once more in the museum in Amsterdam. Well, the process and various techniques, te techniques rather, used to authenticate a piece of art or to authenticate a smartphone user or a credentialed employee, that technology of authentication has significantly progressed over the last several decades. Technology has given us retinal scans, thumbprint logins, voice recognition logins for our phones and our computers, our cars, our workstations, our office buildings, and even our homes. When it comes to this kind of authenticating technology, what used to be only possible uh, in, in, in sophisticated spy movies is now accessible to each and every one of us today. I was recently given a tour of a, of a wine cellar, and the wine cellar it, it has a single door, and outside that door there is a thumbprint pad that one has to put their thumb on, but not only that, the person whose thumbprint is being recorded has a corresponding pin number that they have to add to get in and have access to the wine cellar. Our technology has exploded when it comes to authenticating things and authenticating people. In the ancient world, there were technologies at play to authenticate stuff, to authenticate different objects, and to authenticate people as well. One example of this is the technology of the touchstone. The touchstone. The, the touchstone was a rock used to determine the authenticity of precious metals, like silver or gold. You would take what you thought to be silver or gold, and you'd strike it against the touchstone, and it would, would leave a particular mark. And experts would know what kind of mark should be left if it is, in fact, the real deal. If it is, in fact, silver or gold, once you strike it, it will leave that particular mark, and you can say, yes, that's silver, yes, that is gold. Now, in Jesus' time, there was a Greek word to describe the touchstone. There was a Greek word to describe it. It was the word basnos, basnos. And it's a word that actually, you didn't know where I was going until right now. It's a word that actually shows up in this parable. Surprisingly, it shows up in this parable. Basnos, touchstone, shows up here. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was being tormented. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. This word tormented, this word tormented is the word basnos. It's the word for touchstone. It's the word used to describe an authenticating process or an authenticating tool. See, this word morphed beyond just describing it to as uh, something that belongs to, to the word, world of metals, just trying to decide whether this is truly silver or this is 
truly gold, and it began to be used to describe torture, to elicit from some prisoner some truth, some fact, some secret that they may be keeping. And just as the touchstone told the truth about a metal, so too did torture, the ancients thought, when it comes to trying to find out the truth of something or trying to find out a secret being kept by this individual. So this word, basnos, only appears three times in the New Testament, only three times, twice in this text, once in the Gospel of Matthew. And make no mistake, it is a harsh word. It is a harsh word, especially when you just sing a hymn like, God is so good. God is so good to me. Because this word's harshness, in some ways, is connected to a theologically disturbing point within the text, that somehow God is involved with this torment of the rich person, that God somehow is a player in what this rich man experienced in this basnos kind of moment. That is to say, in the age to come, says the parable that God, that God is establishing a reality where the rich will be tormented and the poor will be brought literally, the text says, into the bosom of Abraham, which is a, a turn of phrase describing what it means to be at home and at peace with God. Are you theologically disturbed by that judgment? I am, especially when you wear purple linen. And we'll get to that in just a second. Abraham is given voice in this parable. He's given voice in this parable. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. And so the rich man pleads, he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to his father's house to warn his five brothers we can only assume that they are on the same trajectory to receive this fate that he himself has received to go back and tell them that this fate awaits them as well. But Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. They should, they should listen to them. I mean, it's kind of like, really? They should listen to them. They already have it in front of them. They already know what is pleasing and what is good to God. But then he persists. He says, no, Father Abraham, I have an idea. If someone is raised from the dead, this is a good idea. If someone is raised from the dead and goes to my brothers, they will surely be convinced. They will surely be convinced that this is their fate too, and they need to change 
But Abraham says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They will keep, I love the image, they will keep hitting snooze. The last line obviously is an allusion to Jesus, right? For he himself has been raised from the dead and he bears witness to Moses and the prophets. They have it right in front of them, but they keep hitting snooze. Now, if we're going to receive, I think, the full impact of Jesus' teaching in this parable, we actually have to take a step back and cover some of the verses that precede its telling. In particular, Luke 16, 14 is of interest. This is what Luke says, and Jesus will hear his voice within this text. The Pharisees, this precedes the text, the parable that we heard read this morning. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed Jesus. He had just told them the parable of the dishonest manager. So they hear this parable, and they start making fun of him. So he says to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. I want us to pay special attention to this phrase, God knows your hearts. Because I think at least in one level, and we've been saying this in this parable series, that there's many ways to interpret these parables. But at least on one level, that line I think is part of the interpretive key for us this morning. That God knows your hearts. You see the torment, the bosnos. That torment that is described in this picture, this very disturbing and judgmental picture, that experience is a touchstone for the rich man. It is the authentication process. His life is being struck against the very word of God. And he has been proven, has been shown to not be a friend of God. Precisely because maybe it's connected to what the Pharisees are described as possessing a love of money, a trust of money. The rich man is being struck against the very word of God, against this touchstone, and he realizes that he is not a friend of God because he's not a friend to Lazarus. And there is, described in this very judgmental, judgment-based picture of this torment as his life strikes against God's word. In the same way, I think, Jesus is the touchstone for the Pharisees. I mean, that's what's really happening, I think, in this text. He's sort of like their tormentor. He is their touchstone as he describes them as, as lovers of, of money, as, as justifying themselves. And they too, like the rich man, are not found to be friends of God because they have neglected Lazarus. Poignantly, the name Lazarus means God is my help, which should give us a clue that God is on the side of the left out and the left behind. That God is on the side 
of the Lazaruses of this world. What's interesting, many of us, if we grew up in the church, we heard this story framed, uh, titled, uh, Dives and Lazarus, right? Dives is the Latin word describing the rich man. In some manuscripts, I just learned this this week, in some ancient manuscripts of this particular text, there's another name given to the rich man, a particular name, and it's the name Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? Nineveh is one of the names used in certain manuscripts to describe this rich man. If you remember our series about a year ago, we talked about Nineveh as this great, wicked, violent city. But Nineveh is the one that needs to repent. Nineveh is the one that needs to to turn. Lazarus, that name implies that God is on their side, the left behind and the left out. Jesus says as much, right? The core of his ministry. It begins in a temple, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, the 61st chapter, and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, I think in the same way today, Jesus has to be our touchstone. I think our lives when struck against his life, will reveal the very nature of our hearts. Will reveal whether or not we, like the Pharisees, like those who like to wear fine purple linen, are lovers of money, trust in the power of money. And because we do, we neglect the Lazaruses of the world Is that the nature of our heart? Or is there another nature being shaped and formed by God's grace and God's forgiveness in who we are and who we're called to be by sharing and empowering and befriending the Lazaruses of the world? As I was thinking of, a, of, of, a, of an Old Testament a parallel besides Isaiah 61 and sort of the, the plainness by which Abraham speaks to the rich man saying, look, they have the prophets. They have Moses. I thought of Micah, the great prophet Micah 6, 8, this great text where it reads, look, mortal, human being, you know what you need to do. It's right in front of you. What does the Lord require? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I think this parable challenges us to make Jesus our touchstone, particularly as it pertains to wealth, to power, to money, and to that which we put our trust in, and the ways in which that impacts how we care for the least of these. In the shadow of this text today, as I was thinking about God's faithfulness through our community and the ways in which this church, in many ways, when it hits the touchstone of Christ's word, that in so many ways it shows itself to be authentic. Thank God for that. Amen? Thank God for that. Thank God for our community ministries. Thank God for our Women's Transition Center. Thank God for our global partnerships. Thank God for the ministries that we partner with that are here on our campus that are binding up the brokenhearted, 
that are participating in the liberation of the oppressed, that are supporting the prisoner, ministries like the Samaritan Counseling Center, ministries like Child Spring International, Ministries like redemption after prison. Thank God for these. And I thank God when, when the church's heart and life is struck against that touchstone that we prove ourselves in many ways as being authentic followers of Christ. But there are ways, in fact, both corporately and individually, that when we strike against that touchstone, our hearts are revealed as something less than that. And thank God by God's grace and God's forgiveness that God does give us a chance again and again and again and again to be faithful. And so for those of us who sometimes, when we strike against that touchstone, find out that we're wearing the purple linen, that, that, that we're like the rich man, may we take the opportunity to repent and to turn and, and to discern what it means, what it means to centralize the way Jesus did, to centralize ministry with and for the Lazaruses of the world. For that is core to who he is. That is the essence of his touchstone. When we strike against it, may we be found faithful for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. have a vision, we have a touchstone that proves authentic friendship with God, authentic following of Christ in the world. May we measure ourselves against that standard. May we live into that call that Christ has set before us when it comes to how we deal with money, how we deal with power, and how we relate to the Lazaruses of this world. And for that journey, 
May the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life.